Uh, hello. Hello. Just one hello today. This is normally where Sid would say hello, but she abandoned us this week. Yeah. She decided, hey, I don't like these people enough to do a podcast with them this week, so I'm just not going to. Those are her exact words. Yeah, basically that's what happened. It was pretty harsh. So, I mean, in addition to being thrown off my game because Sid isn't here, um, normally I would start out the episode uh, talking about whatever ad is on IMDb because they've been very attention grabbing lately, but mm-hmm. I got to go ahead and say it. Uh, right now, the banner ad on IMDb is for USAA. <laughs> Which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because isn't that like only for military? I think so. Or are they like expanding their consumer base? I thought it was only for military and military family members. That's like what I thought extended. too. So I'm I'm sitting here thinking, isn't everybody who's even eligible to get insurance through USAA already aware of it? Who are you advertising to? Yeah, you'd think. You're just going to get a lot of disappointed people who are going to click on your big giant banner ad and say, oh, I'm not in the military. My immediate family's not in the military. Maybe the real goal of this ad is to get people to join the military. Ooh. Army of One wasn't working out so well, so they just decided <laughs> to advertise car insurance. <laughs> I guess so. Is that how desperate we are as a country? Like... Car insurance is so expensive that you might as well just join the military. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We're in a great place. Yeah. This country, great. Mm-hmm. On a great track, guys. Let's just keep it up exactly as we are. Exactly. Pretty soon you're going to start getting like insulin advertisements oh, that no. the fine print is just like, join the military. <laughs> yeah, it'll work. Would you like to treat your diabetes? The only way to do it. Join the military. <laughs> I just imagine it whispering to me like that. Probably. Well, because it's like trying to get into your subconscious because mm-hmm. it's not directly saying join the military. Yeah, it's true. So. Yeah. Join the military, I guess. To get your insulin and your car insurance. <laughs> Great. Yes. That's fantastic. Hello, folks. Hey, I guess I should do the intro. Um Hello and welcome to this very special non-numbered episode of We Watch Movies and Then Talk About Them, the only podcast on the internet where we watch a movie and then talk about it. There may be others where other people watch movies and then talk about them, but this is the only one where we do it. My name is Andrew Westensko. I am the host of this year podcast, joined at my right hand in life and in all things by Becca. That's me. And there is an empty seat across the room where Sid would sit. It's pretty sad. I feel like I should take a picture of it and send it to Sid. You should make her feel real sad. I'm doing it right now. It's a perfect use of on-air time. Um, today, we uh, since Sid decided to abandon us, we have decided to abandon our normal format, mostly. We did actually just watch a movie um, because I can't get through a Saturday without watching a movie. It's just kind of like ingrained into me. I also usually can't get through a Friday. Um, Wednesdays are tough. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm a little flexible, but Sundays and Mondays, definitely (laughs) hard to get through without watching a movie. Or at least an episode of MasterChef. Or at least an episode of MasterChef or five. Yes. Holy heavens, people. (laughs) The entirety of MasterChef is now available on Hulu. That is all we are doing right now. Just watching a lot of MasterChef. (laughs) That's not true. I've watched some movies. Um, But today... Um, we decided to 
uh, take the podcast time and instead of discussing uh, one individual movie, uh, we were inspired by our episode, uh, episode 40, about Pan's Labyrinth that we did just last week. Um, It was our first foreign language film that we have done, Uh, but it was not our first foreign film. Hmm. Hmm. What does he mean by that? I thought that foreign films means in a different language. You're wrong. Oh, what? You're wrong. That's weird. Yeah, you thought that, but you were wrong. What does it mean? Well, <laughs> today um, we're going to give uh, kind of a, a little primer crash course introduction into some international cinema. Uh, basically, movies that come from outside of the United States. And while the great majority of these uh, are not in English and are... Uh, made by filmmakers that maybe you haven't heard of um, or are not aware of. And that sounds uh, super hipsterish of me to say that. <laughs> you just haven't heard of these, man. Um, I kind of wanted to go through and suggest some movies from some different regions around the world. And I guess talk a little bit about the appeal of each of these regions and or directors and or films that I am going to recommend in the hope that uh, maybe something piques your interest. You hear some plot line intrigues you or some uh, unique stylistic thing intrigues you and you are encouraged to seek out any or all of these films. Um Full disclosure, uh, I am not an expert on international cinema by any means or foreign films or whatever. There are a lot of holes in my knowledge. I'm only one person and I watch movies for fun, not for a living. So I have to make time for every movie that I watch. So there's a lot of threads uh, in international cinema that I kind of want to pull on that I haven't had the chance to. Um... I did do some introductory stuff into a couple of filmmakers that I'm really interested in in preparation for this episode. Uh, my area of expertise, I would say, and even then I'm, I wouldn't even call myself an expert, would be in like uh, Russian and Eastern European film. Uh, for those of you who don't uh, know me personally, I studied Russian in college. That's what I graduated in. And part of that, uh, we had to take some arts classes. So I took a handful of Eastern European, Soviet, and Russian cinema courses that uh, really opened up my eyes to just a totally different style of filmmaking than I had been exposed to. Um, Here in the United States, we have it's it's we have honestly a pretty diverse style of filmmaking uh we have a lot of diverse filmmakers but we do have um our own cinematic language that we really uh prescribe to um some of your big name american american directors would be like uh you know scorsese spielberg uh paul thomas anderson michael bay uh james cameron who am I missing? Anybody? I'm not that good with directors. That's fine. <laughs> um, but if you look across these guys, there's, there's a, 
a distinct kind of cinematic language that comes from being an American filmmaker. And that is true as well with being a Russian filmmaker or, um, you know, a German filmmaker or Japanese or whatever. Um, so that's basically how this is going to go down is um, Becca has seen probably half the movies on this list. Um, so we'll have her chime in about the ones that she has seen. Um mm-hmm. And we'll just kind of go from there. We're going to go a little bit region by region. Um, I'm going to start with some of the films uh, that I consider a little bit more accessible. And then we'll move into uh, some of the more obtuse stuff as we go on. How does that sound to you? That sounds good. Yeah? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, well, let's let's kick it off with a region that i am not super familiar with outside of this but i did want to just give it one more shout out um and that is australia yes um the only film when i was thinking about different regions the only film that i could think of off the top of my head that's australian is the babadook yay so the babadook uh for those of you who don't know we do have an entire episode covering it the babadook is uh the story of a mother and her son uh, who are being haunted by this creature called the Babadook. Uh, it's basically, uh, uh, I guess, a monster movie? Yes, with a whole ton of symbolism. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it really is a fantastic movie. Um, I think at its core, it's uh, just a really, really well done monster movie. Um, we do have an episode about... Yeah about becca drops some super hot takes in that episode yeah i do so i think that the babadook is probably my favorite horror film that's a completely fair take it's a really it's really it's like, really really good for me right now i think it's probably tied with the babadook and the shining wow and that should tell you uh what level it puts it on she puts it on a kubrick level um so yeah so that's just an example of maybe something that you didn't know was a foreign film yeah, I forget that too. And I mean, like we said in the beginning, it doesn't have to be in a different language to be foreign. Uh, but I always think of the Babadook as just being American, I guess. But it's important to remember that it's Australian and thus counts as a foreign film. Yeah. Um, let's jump over to uh, the great island of the United Kingdom. Um, and again, when it comes to defining international cinema and or foreign films, however you want to talk about them, um, I think for me, it more depends on the director, uh, where they're from. So some of these films are going to be, uh, produced either in, you know, in England or in America or something like that, but by, um, directors from a certain country and they, uh, bring in their own stylistic things. Um, One of the things that I want to talk about that really defines a region uh, as far as its cinema goes is history. Um, You might not realize it until you're forced to look outside of it, but there's a lot of of history and a lot of cultural norms that we kind of take for granted when it comes to um, American cinema. If you imagine watching something like The Departed and not being familiar with american culture i feel like you'd be a little bit lost yeah um or even something like you know there will be blood Mm. or um i'm blanking here 
Um, you know, if, if, if Lincoln, for example, you know oh, what yeah. I mean? Like a, a lot of the times we take our history for granted and, and the things that we know for granted. And, um, you know, filmmakers make a lot of assumptions about things that we know and things that we understand. And they do that internationally as well. So another uh, one that I want to touch on from uh, the UK is actually Dunkirk. Because that was one that when it was announced, I had never heard of Dunkirk before. Mm-hmm. Me either. And the few people that I talked to that had heard of it had only heard of it because of atonement. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's not something that gets taught in American history classes. And it's really a, a spectacular event. And I think that it's Nolan's most British film. Yeah. I think that's a really good point to bring up that we can talk about with a couple of um, some of these other movies as well. Is just that film can also help you learn about the history and the culture of other countries and culture when, when we're talking about foreign films specifically. Yeah. So it's incredibly beneficial that way yeah and so you look at something like dunkirk and it it takes nolan's time-bending wonkiness and applies it to uh you know this historical event and you learn something and you have a fantastic film going experience Mm -hmm. uh for those of you who have not heard my rankings i actually put um dunkirk as nolan's third best film i think i think it's it's fantastic i think that dunkirk is hard underrated so if you've even if you've seen it maybe go back and check it out again well yeah you got to watch it a second time yeah if you've only if you've only seen it once you should watch it a second time understanding how the timelines work and everything it makes it it so much more enjoyable so much better the second time um moving on to another uh characteristically british film uh clockwork orange you haven't seen this have you no um it takes place in future britain uh kind of like a weird uh almost steampunky uh future britain it is about what what on earth is clockwork orange about um I don't even know how to describe it. It is about a gang of young ruffians who are total and complete 'er ne'er-do-wells. They go around doing horrible, horrible, horrible things. Um, And the leader of this gang is taken to prison and subjected to, I guess, behavior reassignment therapy would be one way to put it. Or like, uh, basically, he's conditioned to... Uh, act a certain way uh the state has decided that he should act and it's a really interesting uh take on things because it deals with a lot of uh social anxieties that have really existed since maybe the end of world war ii as far as like the youth uh becoming too rowdy and irreverent and psychopathic and all of this it deals with all of these uh social fears that basically old conservative people have in a really interesting way because the people in the film truly are awful like horrible horrible people um but it just brings into the question like is this the right way to handle it and it's 
it's a very brutal film. It's very difficult to watch for sure. But I think that it has a lot of merit to it. Hmm. Um, I have not seen all of Kubrick's films. Do you think I would like it? I don't know if you'd like it. I might appreciate it. Okay. It's hard to like. It, it really is a film that's hard to say that you like it. Yeah. I feel like um, my taste in movies is like a good gauge for people who are not yet into foreign film but might be interested in it. Like the movies that I like are the ones that are more accessible and yeah. easier to like. Yeah. And one of the reasons that I would uh, mark this as a foreign film is really because in America we're kind of wusses. Um, in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to our media, we censor ourselves very, very heavily. Uh, we tone down anything that is sex or violence, um, which sounds weird when you think of something like Saving Private Ryan or um, you know, any of these like crazy war movies. But really, apart from war movies, we really do tone down our sex and violence to a huge degree. And so I think one of the biggest shocks coming into a lot of international film is how they don't do that. And really the sense of normalcy that a lot of these things are treated with because we tend to make a big deal out of them in America. Uh, but it's much more of an open dialogue in other places about these kind of things. So that's, that was one of the biggest hurdles for me when it comes to Clockwork Orange specifically and some of these other films that we're going to talk about later on um, is that these things that we just don't talk about or don't discuss or tone down, even in film, uh, are just on display. Um, and so a lot of the stuff in Clockwork Orange is really graphic and disturbing, uh, but the point of it is to disturb you. And I think that a lot of uh, international filmmakers are a lot less afraid of disturbing or uh, turning off their audience than American filmmakers are. And that's not a good or a bad thing. It just is a stylistic difference. That's interesting. I don't think I would have caught on to that because I feel like we do watch a lot of violent movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see here. Let's jump... Uh, south of the border a little bit. Um, now, again, I'm by no means an expert on this region, uh, but Mexico. Mexico has turned out some of the greatest filmmakers of our generation, the three amigos specifically, uh, who are Alfonso Cuaron, Guillermo del Toro, and Alejandro Iñárritu. Uh, these dudes are basically just passing around the, the best director, Oscar. <laughs> I think in like the last six years, there's been one year where one of the three of them hasn't won it. <laughs> And Inaritu even pulled it off back to back, which is crazy uh, for Birdman and The Revenant. Um, but it, it, if you're sleeping on any of these guys, uh, please don't. Uh, these This is where the line gets a little bit fuzzy, um, as these guys have integrated very heavily into um, American cinema specifically. Uh, you look at something like Children of Men or Birdman or um, The Revenant is a very american film <laughs> um and so the, the line gets a little bit blurry here but i think it's important to recognize that uh mexico has given us three of the most talented and most uh impactful directors in kind of this age of cinema mm -hmm. and i love that they can make such amazing films that are like more true to themselves mm -hmm. 
and where they came from and yeah yeah uh two that i do want to shout out obviously pan's labyrinth um from guillermo del toro yes uh go check out our episode on that um and the other one and we've talked about this plenty so i won't bore you guys too much with it but roma um roma is a mexican film through and through and it's incredible um it basically acts as a love letter to alfonso Cuarón's life growing up uh, to the housekeeper that they had around um and it just tells this heart-wrenching story of this uh, woman who is a housekeeper for um, a more well-to-do family in Mexico City and the impact that she has on the family as well as the family has on her. Um, And then at the same time, her uh, search for her own uh, sense of identity in a world where so much is defined for her and dictated by specifically the men in her life. Um, it's, I don't it's a really beautiful story. Um, like I said about her really searching out who she is, um, and where she fits in a world that she has so little control over and you know how she can have a meaningful contribution to the people around her. It, 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 it's just a beautiful film. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think I talked about this a little bit in our episode on Pan's Labyrinth, uh, but these two are both great films to get into if you're looking for something that's both foreign and in a language that's not English, uh, because both of them are just so riveting and the storytelling is so great and just a joy to watch. So it's really easy to transition into something that's in a different language and watching with subtitles when it's something like Pan's Labyrinth or Roma. Yeah. And I think that's a hurdle for a lot of people when getting into international film is the idea that you have to read subtitles, uh, the entire movie. Um, it's not as bad as you might think it would be. Don't be afraid of subtitles and don't be afraid of black and white. I'll say that. Yes, And don't be afraid of combining them together. Yes. And one small aside is we're about halfway through, uh, what we're going to be doing here. Um, I don't know how to put this. You don't always have to be in the mood to watch an abstract foreign film. Like (laughs) that's why that's partially why like, you know, Becca's only seen half this list and I haven't seen a third of the movies that I want to, that fit into these categories is because like sometimes I'm just not in the mood to sit down for two and a half hours and read subtitles. And that's perfectly okay. Um, don't force yourself to watch anything that you're not in the mood for. Um, because it, well, it won't be a good experience. Yeah, It won't be a good experience. It's not fair to you and it's not fair to the film. Yeah. But yeah, I totally agree. If you can get in the right mindset and really be ready to watch a movie and just enjoy it for what it was made for, like some of these movies are just incredible and like i think about them a lot yeah um the perfect time to watch a long foreign film which a lot of these are is early saturday evening put it on at like five o'clock or like sunday afternoon sunday afternoons are a bit sleepy i think that's fair and that is a risk with a lot of these especially some of the ones are going to get into towards the end of the episode um is they are a lot of them are slow and i'm sure we'll talk about this but 
it's okay to take a break from the movie. Like, <laughs> yes, here's the thing. I've said this on the podcast and I will say it a million times. Any movie that is two and a half hours or more. And really even you could cut that down to two if you wanted to mm-hmm. take an intermission, whether the movie has one or not. When you hit about halfway through, just pause, get up, walk around for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Look at your phone. Who You know, get that little burst of dopamine that facebook gives you because you're addicted to it whatever um if a movie is long and slow don't feel the need to watch it all in one go like find a good pausing point and get up go eat dinner who cares come back to it later like Mm. there's nothing wrong with that it's it's about enjoying the film absolutely i think we didn't um ever get into taking intermissions until after we saw 2001 in the theater yeah just, and there I was, was like an intermission for like 15 minutes yeah and that was so important to my experience with that film oh yeah and then yeah since then we've started doing it with a lot of movies yeah basically if it hits the two and a half hour mark at an hour 15 i just pause it and we take 20 minutes and there's nothing wrong with that sure yeah. it'll extend the amount of time that you're technically watching the movie but your experience is going to be better and uh, counterpoint to that, if you're into it, if you're just like riveted, don't force yourself to, obviously. But, yeah. But if if you feel yourself, I guess, getting a bit drowsy or needing to stand up and walk around or whatever, just do it. It doesn't mean that like, oh, foreign film just isn't for me because I get sleepy. Yeah. If something is long and quiet and slow and in a different language, you might get a little sleepy. But the important thing is pushing through. I guess that's another point I want to make. And I feel like I'm going off on a lot of tangents here, but... Um, a lot of these films, uh, that I'm recommending, and I think that Roma fits into this as well as most of the films that we're going to be talking about from this point out, um, they really, uh, are not built to entertain you, I would say. Um, we're getting into, um, a lot of the European, uh, filmmakers and, um, Eastern European and Soviet and Russian filmmakers specifically uh, used film as a means of expression and expressing ideas that they were not able to express because of, you know, a totalitarian government and all of that. So these are films that are not it's not freaking transformers. You know what I mean? These are films that you're supposed to sit down and pick through the symbolism and pick through the motifs and what the film is trying to say and ask yourself the questions that these films are asking. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a big, uh, part of American style movies is that entertainment factor. And that like we, There's so many movies, which is not bad to just watch a movie just to be entertained. But you're right. It's so different from especially some of these movies that we're going to be talking about. And it's just important to have that mindset that this is not going to just entertain me and give me every single thing I want. Like I'm going to have to sit with it and think about it and put in some effort into understanding this film. Yeah. Um, So let's. Uh, jump all the way over before we get into all of the Eastern European stuff and I start geeking out like crazy. (laughs) Um, 
because that's where, uh, like I said, that's where my love of international cinema really began. And I can credit pretty much those courses that I had to take in college and the Criterion Collection for <laughs> all of the foreign films that I have seen, basically. Yeah. Um, as well as the Criterion subreddit, people recommending things. A really good resource there. Uh, but let's jump over to Japan, because I think that, um, uh, and again, no expert, uh, yesterday and today, I split it between two days. Um, I watched Seven Samurai uh, by Akira Kurosawa. Um, it is the story of a small Japanese village in the 16th century um, who keep getting raided by bandits and having their food stolen and they're barely trying to survive and it's just kind of dire straits. So they decide to basically go into the city and try and hire some samurai to come and defend them from these bandits so that they are able to uh, basically just keep surviving. And this movie is three and a half hours long. Ugh. Now, so long. I knew that I was jumping into the deep end a little bit with that. There's plenty of other Kurosawa films. And I was really interested in, in uh, watching some of his movies just because I've heard a lot of really good things. Uh, there's plenty of other movies of his that are shorter. Uh, I just kind of wanted to, I guess, baptism by fire a little bit. <laughs> and it is a long movie. You always kind of forget how long three and a half hours is. That's so long. I think it was when I sat down at 1.30 and I was like, oh, I'll finish this at five. That <laughs> <laughs> um, I was like, geez. So I split it between two days. Uh, there is an intermission built into it. Uh, this movie was honestly fantastic. Um, and I think it's a good bridging point uh, or this style of film is a good bridging point between uh, some of the American cinema and some of the more abstract stuff that we're going to talk about uh, coming up here. Um, the thing that struck me most is how funny it was um, and how uh, just incredible the characters were in this movie. And um, I've read about other films that so that's kind of a Kurosawa uh, staple is good characters. Um, but these dudes are like goofy, jolly samurai. And they're, they're just, they're so funny, but they're so smart and they, there's just so many good character arcs. Um, really this film is completely acceptable to watch as like a part one and a part two. It's in black and white. It's in Japanese. It's three and a half hours long and 95% of you were just turned off by at least one of those descriptors. <laughs> um, but it really is, uh, fantastic. And it, it, I get a lot of entertainment value out of watching, uh, some of these movies that have, I guess, set the standard um, for uh, movies that I am familiar with. And there's so many shots and uh, so many uh, themes and things that are uh, very common, even in American cinema, uh, that were just kind of pioneered in this movie. And there's a reason that it's... Uh, one of the more famous films to come out of Japan. And again, it's not one that I'm like, oh, I need to sit down and watch this again because it's three and a half gosh darn hours long. Um, but it was very, very, very good. Definitely uh, lived up to the hype. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. yeah go for it. Oh, I just w wasn't sure. I this, 
This is foreign, right? Yeah. Sorry. Um, I just remembered um, Death Note is one of the movies that we've watched that's Japanese. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's Japanese. Um, but we watched it um, dubbed in English. Did we? I'm pretty sure. I don't remember. I think so. But you can watch it with subtitles too. But And there's an anime Death Note that we haven't watched. But it's three movies. And I think that... Um, I mean, they're really, really good, but I think that's like a good transition into foreign films as well, and especially foreign films in another language because they are pretty accessible and fun to watch. Well, and maybe that's just a Japanese thing. I haven't seen enough to know, but like just really good stories. Yeah. Good stories and good characters. I don't know. Uh, The other one that we watched this week uh, (laughs) is called House. Um, it's actually, I think it's only available on Criterion. They like resurrected it. Wow. And it's this, it's this weirdo, weirdo cult horror movie, I guess. It's so good. I have not been able to get it out of my head this week. Basically these seven, uh, teenage Japanese schoolgirls uh, decide to spend their spring break or whatever. Um, at this one girl's aunt's house and it turns out the house is haunted and weird things happen i have no idea how to describe this movie it's just wacko it the, the story is completely incoherent um the characters are really fluid i guess <laughs> <laughs> like it's easy to lose track of who is who unless you're really good at telling you know, Japanese teenagers apart. I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> Whatever. Um, they have very specific personalities. They're, yeah. It's pretty easy. Their names are all like, based on like their interests. So one of them is called... Or their appearances. Or... Yeah. So like one of them is like the strong one. So they call her Kung Fu. <laughs> uh, and then there's one really that's really smart and they call her Professor. Yeah. Prof. 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 <laughs> uh, there's, there's one that's sweet. called Gorgeous. There's Gorgeous. There's Sweet. Um, Mac. Mac, who's the fat one. <laughs> Which I guess I learned this. Uh, that's apparently short for a slang term for stomach. Oh, really? Yeah, so they're literally like calling oh her stomach. <laughs> uh, fantasy. Yeah, fantasy is like really excitable. And melody. Melody. And, and she plays, plays music. Piano. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, I'm, t- I'm telling you people, this is one of the strangest movies that I have ever, ever, ever seen. Same. But it's so good. It's so entertaining. If you're if you're able, like that is one that you can just sit back and not think about because there's no point in thinking about it because it's just weird for the sake of being weird. Mm-hmm. There's a cat who's a witch. Yeah, there's a cat that's a witch. Um, An old lady who's... There's a skeleton weird. that spends probably three quarters of the movie dancing. Yes. It's great. It's so great. All right, folks, here we go. Oh, hang on. We're not quite there yet. We have two more before we get into the really bad stuff. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Scandinavia um, and three directors in particular. Uh, first is Lars von Trier. Uh, we have talked about a handful of Lars von Trier movies um, on uh, on the podcast. We did an entire episode on Dancer in the Dark. Um, it was a listener request. It so was a listener we request. Do take listener request, and it's actually our second 
most listened episode of all time, which blows me wow. away. I cannot believe that that's our number two episode of all time. So maybe we need to be doing more foreign films. Maybe so. <laughs> um, it's in English. That one is a musical. Um, it's about a woman who is slowly going blind. Um, but uh, it's a like genetic condition. So before she goes blind, her goal is to work uh, to save up the money so that her son can get an operation to prevent him from going blind. Very depressing. Oh, I, so depressing. Lars von Trier movies are intensely depressing. I think it's probably a perfect 10 for me, but I need to watch it one more time. Yeah. If it would get a decent release in the United States, then we would just buy it. Yes. Uh, Criterion, get on that. Please release Dancer in the Dark. Um, the other one I want to shout out from Lars von Trier is Breaking the Waves. Uh, both of these are more, uh, I guess at this point they'd be considered kind of mid-period uh, Lars von Trier films. Um, but something that is, uh, I guess across uh, a lot, a lot of across the board uh, when it comes to Scandinavian film is a lot of these are very, uh, surreal in a lot of ways. Um, and one of the things that we talk about in dancer in the dark is how grounded and real the film feels. But I think that the more that I've thought about it since we have talked about it is that because it's so grounded but with with his camera movement and the way that he frames scenes and everything it does come across very surreal and buoyant well it's a musical but it like is feels like a realistic musical like you watch it and you're like yeah. oh yeah i would be singing like <laughs> i don't know so it, it has like this weird balance between yeah being surreal and that's and similar grounded. to breaking the waves also from Lars Montrier. uh this one is a weird one um it's definitely more out there and Lars Montrier is one of the the directors that definitely takes advantage of uh being less squeamish about violence and sex um but take that for what you will that's Break pretty much what this one's about right yeah breaking <laughs> the waves is about a man and a woman who get married they're very much in love uh and shortly after their marriage uh the man she is a she's hyper religious the girl is um and shortly after their marriage the man gets in a workplace accident becomes paralyzed um and therefore cannot satisfy his wife's uh very insistent carnal desires um they're just a couple of horny little horn dogs basically <laughs> um and so he requests that she uh, basically go have sex with other men to be satisfied. Uh, she's not thrilled on this idea, but he's very insistent about it. Uh, she believes it to be a sin, essentially, uh, because, again, very religious. And so the, the whole movie is this really intense and depressing look at this uh, internal struggle that she has between God and her husband. Um, and each of them essentially telling her to do conflicting things and, uh, essentially her having to decide who she's going to listen to. Hmm. It's very depressing. It's also phenomenal. <laughs> do you think I would like it? Uh, or I guess like is the right word. Do you think I would yeah, appreciate yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, there's a reason it's on the shelf right, right now. I purchased the movie. Um, but yeah, it's fantastic. Um, somebody else I want to shout out, uh, international is, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. He is the director of Drive. 
which is obviously a very Americanized film, takes place in Los Angeles. He does a fantastic job at bringing Los Angeles to life. But he has a whole uh, bevy of films. Uh, these guys are both Danish, by the way. Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn and uh, Lars Montier are both Danish. Uh, and one film of his that I want to shout out is Bronson. Stars Tom Hardy as Bronson. Um, it's kind of a biopic, but it's super weird. Um, if you want to see Tom Hardy basically put on just an incredible one-man show um, while learning about just this wacko of a guy, uh, it's very dreamlike, very surreal, um, but just phenomenally done. Um, so I guess that's my through line here when it comes to Scandinavia is the, the dreamlike surrealism of it all. If you're into that, check out some of these Scandinavian directors. Uh, the last one that I want to talk about is we actually just finished watching this. Uh, we, we just watched uh, Persona uh, by Ingmar Bergman. He is Swedish um, and the film is in Swedish. This one's in black and white. And I think probably three quarters of his catalog is in black and white. He's been somebody that I've been very interested in kind of starting to explore for a while, but just haven't really found the opportunity to sit down and just watch one of his movies. So that's what we did today. One of his movies are pretty short, which is nice. Yeah, for the most part, they're all around 90 minutes. Uh, so really digestible. Um, and yeah, it was basically what we just talked about to the extreme. Dreamlike, oh, yeah. surreal. I don't really know what was real and what wasn't. Very abstract, uh, but just visually phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely incredible. If you are a visually driven film goer like myself uh then these movies we're getting into are going to really excite you which sounds interesting sometimes when we're talking about a black and white film but i don't know just like he does he did some absolutely magical things with black and white in this film he really did and i just even noticed like i felt like i i could like see every single part of each person's face that was Mm -hmm. on screen like he had there were lots of really up close shots of faces Mm -hmm. that were just amazing and the lighting was amazing yeah like like i said it's it's probably the most spectacular black and white photography i've ever seen it's just it's just phenomenal um so i'm definitely gonna be uh checking out some more of his films uh Criterion just put out, or not just, I guess about six months ago, put out a big, huge box set of most of Ingmar Bergman's career that I'm probably going to end up buying at some point. Who knows? We're going to have the whole Criterion collection at some point. Yeah, I don't think we will. <laughs> um, but the other thing that I want to mention is Ingmar Bergman is um, Ari Aster says that Ingmar Bergman is his biggest influence in filmmaking. Hmm. And I think that a lot of the camera work, at least on Persona, uh, you could definitely see a lot of the yeah, influence there. Yeah, I can there. see that. I'm, ju- I'm just thinking about Midsummer specifically. Yeah, I feel like I see sure. that a lot. Uh, I guess the plot of Persona, uh, basically there's an actress. Uh, she suddenly goes mute. Um, so she is given a nurse to care for her. Uh and they go out to a seaside cottage and spend a lot of time together. And some wackiness goes down. And that's it. That's the whole plot. <laughs> uh, like I said, very abstract, very strange, uh, but I loved it. Again, because I'm very, I'm very, very visually driven. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of uh, these films that we're going to be talking about coming up here right now are very, very, very visually driven. Uh, a lot of symbolism and things like that. Um, not so much in Scandinavia, but at least in kind of the Soviet bloc, uh, they had to essentially hide the meaning of their films from the censors. So that's that. Uh, that's Scandinavia knocked off. Uh, before we get too crazy, um, I want to touch on a couple of German films. And Becca, I don't think you've seen either of these. I have not. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is Goodbye Lenin. Uh, this stars, oh, I just lost his name. Crap. That's going to bug me. Hang on. This is one that you've been wanting me to watch for a while, right? Daniel Bruhl, um, who has kind of, uh, made a big break into American cinema recently. Um, he plays the young soldier in Inglorious Bastards, um, as well as the bad guy in Captain America Civil War. Oh. So he's made a big break into American mm. cinema, but he's huge in German cinema. Um, this film, it uh, came out in 2003, uh, just over two hours long, um, and it's a comedy. Basically, what happens here... Do we own here, this? Uh, I have it on Amazon. Okay. Um, basically, what happens here is it takes place right around the time that the Berlin Wall comes down. And uh, Daniel Bruhl and his family, they live in East Germany. And his mother is on her deathbed, very sick, uh, diehard communist, basically. Like, does not want the Berlin Wall to fall and kind of East Germany to be absorbed into West Germany. Um, So they live in Berlin. And um, basically, he decides to so she can't get out of her bed she's bedridden and so basically he takes it upon himself to alter her environment to an extent that she doesn't realize that the wall has come down so basically he makes like fake news broadcasts and um has little kids come sing communist anthems to her in her room like does all this wacky stuff uh to convince her that all is well for her um and all of this is wrapped up in um, his very complicated relationship with his father, uh, which in and of itself is kind of an allegory for the very complicated relationship that Germany has with itself and specifically Berlin. So goodbye, Lenin. Um, if you're interested in uh, kind of Cold War history, uh, it has a really fantastic take on it. Um, really well made, really well put together um funny very very funny um pretty widely available uh one that i would definitely recommend it's very digestible um and just a very uh, good film overall cool uh the other one that i want to talk about is a little bit heavier but also very digestible uh it's called the lives of others uh this takes place uh this actually won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. I think it was in 2006 that it came out. Um, and let's just pull it up right here. Yeah, 2006 that it came out. Um, so it takes place in 1984, East Berlin. 
It says here, an agent of the secret police conducting surveillance on a writer and his lover finds himself becoming increasingly absorbed by their lives. So this is a similar thing. Um, takes place towards uh, kind of the end of the separation uh, between uh, East and West Berlin. Uh, it basically follows this artist who is a member of the resistance um, and is hired by the government to produce uh, plays. Uh, but he is kind of using his position as well to uh, sneak information in and out of East Berlin. Uh, we also follow the uh, officer who is in charge of surveilling him. Um, and it's kind of, again, this uh, the complicated relationship that exists between these two people um, and this officer, uh, I guess, coming to grips with uh, this uh, kind of this horrible thing that he's doing in surveilling these people and uh, essentially ruining their lives. Hmm. It's intensely good. Like it is, ex it is an extremely good movie. Again, if you're interested in cold war history, you're going to love it uh, because it, it puts a very personal touch on these things. Uh, that's one that I would highly recommend. The, the lives of others is what it's called. Now we're into the deep stuff. Now we're into the stuff. Okay, here's the thing. This is where we get a little wacky. So again, um, we're getting into Eastern Europe and Russian, Eastern European and Russian cinema. And again, a lot of these films, specifically the ones that were made during the Soviet era, um, had to be approved by censors. And the uh, the film industry at this time was completely and totally owned and operated by the state. There were no private film companies in the Soviet Union. Um, and so these guys had to, you know, get their ideas approved and they get the final cuts, they get the scripts approved, get the final cuts approved, everything. Um, and uh, I guess one of the, one of the really interesting things, obviously I'm very interested in Russian history and Soviet history and culture and all of that. And they use film in a very, very interesting way in that they essentially use film as a means to come to grips with their surroundings and their lives. And we do that too with American cinema, but uh, these guys were just in really crappy situations. Uh, one movie that I want to talk about, um, it was actually, I think, the first foreign film that I truly loved. Um, it's called Repentance. Uh, it's by, it's, it's a Georgian film came out in the early eighties. Um, a guy by the name of, uh, Tengiz Abuladze. I don't speak Georgian, so who knows if I'm saying that right. Basically what this is, is, uh, this kind of, uh, really abstract dictator. Uh, he kind of has different elements of Stalin and Hitler and, uh, Lenin and Mussolini kind of all mixed into one. Uh, he dies. He was the mayor of this town, but basically ran it as a dictator. Um, and the film basically is, is him being put on trial after he's dead. And it's a really interesting kind of reckoning uh, for people who, uh, you know, just kind of stood by while these things happened versus people who uh, stood up and were almost always put down. Um, 
in these situations. And it was a really interesting way for the Soviet Union to kind of wrestle with Lenin and Stalin specifically as being just total garbage piles of human beings. Um, I don't know how widely available it is, honestly, but if you can find it, um, on its own, it's a really good movie, but put into historical context, it's really something special. And I would also recommend this movie. I think this was one of the first or maybe the first Eastern European film you made me watch and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, continuing on with that, as far as, uh, movies that help people, uh, kind of, I guess, come to grips with their history. Um, the most prominent Polish filmmaker, um, outside of Poland and, and inside of Poland, I guess. Um, and I have no idea how to say his name. Um, so we are going to look this up here. Um, and I'll do my best. Hang on. Uh, crap, bear with me here. Director. Okay. Um, I think it's Andre, Andre Vida. Um, but it's spelled A-N-D-R-Z-E-J-W-A-J-D-A. Um, he has a lot of, uh, really great films. Uh, the one that I want to talk about though is called Man of Iron. It is kind of a folk tale about a guy named, uh, Lech Walesa, who was kind of the leader of the workers' rights movement in Poland, um, in, uh, I believe it was the late sixties, early seventies. Let me see. Uh, yeah. So kind of the sixties and seventies, basically it's the, it's the solidarity movement in Poland, which was a big push for workers rights, specifically in the docks. Um, and it's this really interesting personal, folktale of this guy who um is in this position to be a leader of this movement um but basically him wrestling with whether or not he wants to Hmm. um it's not too long i think it's it's just about two hours long Uh, man of iron is what it's called and it's quite good it's a really interesting character study even if you don't know the history um it'll inform you a little bit on the history um and kind of give you a glimpse into this. Uh, he was a real guy, but he's he's basically a folk hero at this point in Poland. Cool. That one's called Man of Iron. Um, another one I want to talk about. Uh, this one, I believe, is Polish as well. Come on. Let's see. Okay, here we go. Um, let me just double check. I'm pretty sure this is Polish. Yeah, it's from Poland. It's called Escape from Escape from the Liberty Cinema. Um, it is about a Polish censor. So he is in charge of censoring movies to be released in Poland. And um, they get a copy of Daybreak which I 
think. No, what am I looking at? There are a lot of movies called Daybreak. I want to say it's um, uh, Woody Allen film. Uh, basically, they get a copy of this film and they are screening it with some of the other sensors. Um, and uh, it gets, if you're into meta cinema, you're going to love this thing. Basically, um, after one of the screenings, the people in the film refuse to, I guess, act according to the script. So the people in the film essentially come alive and the film itself begins interacting with the people in the audience. They start talking to people. They come out of the movie and into the theater. Uh, people in the theater go into the movie. And it's this really interesting um, kind of examination of this whole censorship process that all of these films were subject to for decades um and again a way for the people to wrestle with that process and kind of come to grips with it uh it's funny it's entertaining uh it like i said it's super meta so if you're into meta cinema you're gonna love it um and yeah that's escape from the liberty cinema even the title is ironic. They call it the Liberty Cinema, <laughs> but it's the headquarters of the censors. Ha 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 And the last one that I want to touch on before we get into Russian film, and we will finish off there, is Underground. This one is great. This is one that I have seen. <laughs> um, were you going to say something? Um, I was just going to say, of every foreign film Andrews made me watch, this one has stuck with me more than any other one. Like I feel like I've thought about it a ton since watching it and would love to watch it again. Yeah. This is one that's directed by, um, Emir Kusturica. Um, it is a Yugoslavian and basically it deals with the entire history of the country of Yugoslavia, um, which sounds like a lot and it is a lot. Uh, it's just under three hours long. It is hilarious. <laughs> I think is the first it word really I used is. to describe it. Um, it follows these two best friends um, and it starts out with a war and there's a war in the middle and then it ends with a war. There's just a lot of wars um, in uh, uh, Yugoslavia's very short history. And this is by no means like a historical drama. It's, it's not attempting to tell you the history of Yugoslavia. If you know the history, it definitely um, improves the experience. Um, but there's a lot of other themes going on here as far as family and friendship and identity and um, uh, kind of whether you like what country you identify with. I think that the idea of your country being transient is something that's entirely foreign to Americans. Mm -hmm. We assume that America has always been here and will always be here. And so when you realize that this is a country, an entire country that was created and subsequently broken up in a single lifetime, it's, it's something that's hard to wrap your head around, but they do a really uh, fantastic job of doing that here. Basically it starts out um, with world war two and um, these two best friends, uh, one of their, I think it's the dad or the uncle builds an underground bunker 
uh, for people to go hide in, hence the name underground. Um, and so one of them stays down in the bunker and the other one is in charge of kind of running missions up on the surface and they start manufacturing weapons down in the bunker to supply, uh, the forces on the surface. Um, but, and basically the one friend that stays up on the surface starts making really good money doing this. Uh, so the war ends, but he tells everybody that are in the bunker still that the war is still going on. So basically for 50 years, they believe that there's a war going on uh, because he just has them keep manufacturing arms for him to get richer and richer. So he's, he's basically running this giant scam. Well, and the entire time they're like um, moving the clock back every night, a couple minutes or an hour or whatever. Yeah. So they think that they've been down there for like seven years, but it's really been 15. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. And there's a monkey that drives a tank at one point. Oh, yeah. Um, because that's their biggest accomplishment is they build a tank in the bunker. <laughs> it's it's so funny. It's so wild. Um, but it's really, really, really uh, heartfelt. I always tear up right at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, again, it's you really feel for these people. Um, I want to find... I wonder if it's even on IMDb. Uh, well, and it's really something that you don't think about. Like you mentioned, like your country just not being there anymore. And so it's easy to feel really sympathetic towards the characters and what they're going through. Even if we don't understand it. Yeah. I want to see if I can, I can't. I don't know. The basically one of the characters gives this really, uh, awesome speech directly into the camera, basically telling the audience, like, basically telling them like this might not mean a lot to you but it means a lot to us because this was our country and our story and we wanted to tell it mm-hmm. and i don't know it's just it's really sweet and really touching uh and the movie itself is just hilarious mm-hmm. when it i guess when you talked about the speech that reminded me of just like when we talk about like if movies have stories worth telling like this one definitely does yeah this especially... is definitely a story that deserved to be told yeah like it people need to know it and it's a good one yeah uh okay finally on here uh we won't i guess spend a whole ton of time here because i could talk about a lot of these movies for hours and hours and hours um this is uh, uh, like i said eastern european and russian and soviet film i am very passionate about and i think that again it's a lot of stories that absolutely deserve to be told um one that I want to talk about as that uh, fits into that category. It's called Burnt by the Sun. Um, let me look up who directed it because I don't remember off the top of my head. And these are all specifically Russian films. Yeah, this is this is a Russian film. This one came out in 1994, so post-Soviet. Um, uh, Nikita Mikhailov. Um, was the director and he also stars in it. Um, and basically this is the story of, um, a, he's a, he's a hero of the revolution basically. Um, and he has become a general in the army. Uh, but the army has decided or the, the party, the state 
has decided that he is no longer useful. And so they will, uh, basically they're going to kill him. And the film, uh, takes place at, uh, his, uh, dacha or his summer home. Um, and basically it's this, uh, weird drama because the, the party agent that is sent to, uh, basically determine what to do with him is the, is like the teenage boyfriend of this general's now wife. So it's like this whole personal drama. They've got the entire family there, like grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles, whatever. Uh, he has this really sweet little daughter, uh, the general does. And basically it all leads up to, uh, the purges that Stalin did where he basically purged the party. Mm. And by that means that he just sent hundreds and thousands of people to these labor camps to essentially be executed. And again, it's a story that we don't uh, think about, especially in the United States, but that absolutely deserves to be told. It's not like a direct adaptation of one specific person, uh, but it's basically, it's a representation of a lot of people that, um, we're in this situation where they essentially were party heroes, uh, you know, true believers in the socialist revolution and all of that, and um, were killed just because Stalin decided that they were too dangerous. Jeez. Or one of Stalin's agents decided they were too dangerous or too free thinking or anything like that. Uh, burnt by the sun. Uh, this one, I think, is right around two and a half hours. Uh, oh, two hours and 15 minutes, but it is in color and it's in Russian. It's pretty widely available. I found it on Amazon. Um, and it's it's fantastic. It's heartfelt, um, so well acted, so well made. Um, one that I would very highly recommend again if you have an interest in uh, Russian history. Uh, the only film that I'm going to mention here that I actually haven't seen is Russian Ark. Um, you ever heard of that one? No. So um, Saint Petersburg is home to the second largest art museum in the world after the Louvre. It is uh, the Hermitage or Hermitage. Um, in St. Petersburg and, uh, Russian arc is this 90 minute film, uh, that is all filmed in a single take, uh, that weaves in and out of all of the rooms and halls and galleries of the hermitage. Wow. Um, and I'm not hundred percent sure what the like story of it is. Um, let's see. Let's see. A 19th century French aristocrat, aristic, aristocrat, notorious for his scathing memoirs about life in Russia, travels through the Russian State Hermitage Museum and encounters historical figures from the last 200 plus years. So it seems like kind of an abstract thing. But yeah, it's not, it's um, an hour and 40 minutes, and it's all filmed in a single take. It took him four tries. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> if you can crazy. imagine. Um, and the la- the take that they got it on was their absolute last chance because you can't just close the second largest art museum in the world. And they essentially let them do it for like three days. Oh my gosh. Um, because like just the time that it was required to set up everything and uh, get everything ready to go. Jeez. So that's one that I haven't seen, but I've heard enough good things about and is high enough on my list that I would say check it out. Um, and now we're on to the big boy. We're on to the big daddy. Oh boy. Um, probably one of the more famous, um, and arguably the best, uh, Russian filmmaker, um, Andrei Tarkovsky, uh, made some of the just most, uh, not only the best 
Russian films ever made, but some of the most incredible films ever made. Uh, we talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, uh, but Becca and I recently watched Andrei Rublev. Um, it's a long, hard, slow one. Yeah, this one's but... in black and white. It's in Russian. It's uh, just over three hours long. Uh, there is a three hour and 40 minute version that I didn't make you watch. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, basically, it tells the story of uh, the most famous Russian iconographer. An iconographer is somebody who paints icons in a church, basically the little uh, wood planks that would have images of the Virgin or of Jesus or whatever painted on them in the churches. Um, and just these giant murals. If you've ever, if you've never done it, just Google um, like Russian Orthodox church and just kind of look through Google images because it's some of the most spectacular art that I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, one of the some of the more incredible places I've ever been have been these old Russian churches just painted floor to ceiling in these icons and they're just wow. spectacular. Um, the film is not about that. Um, the film is about uh, the pursuit of truth in art, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's very uh, heady, uh, very uh, abstract. Uh, again, uh, Tarkovsky is very dreamlike in the way that he does things, but it kind of loosely follows Andrei Rublev um, through his life as an iconographer. Um, basically, uh, it goes through just several different vignettes and experiences that he has and then kind of brings all of the themes and everything together. So you basically, you're shown a bunch of stuff for like two and a half hours that you don't really understand how it connects and you're just kind of getting a portrait of Andrei Rublev as a man. And then the last five minutes really tie it all together and then it's just this spectacular ending sequence where the movie shifts into color and it's just mind-blowing it's so phenomenal the way this movie ends that's Andre Rublev that is the most difficult foreign film I've watched I think that's fair um but I do think it has a really interesting message a good one that you can think about and apply to life yeah um, and finally, the last film we're going to talk about is another one from Tarkovsky, uh, that is, I think one of the best films ever made, uh, Stalker. This is one I definitely need to watch again, especially after watching a lot of other foreign films. It's not easy to get through. Um, I think it's just over two and a half hours long, but it is slow. Oh, yeah. It is very, very deliberately paced and quiet. Um, but holy freaking crap this movie it is mind-blowingly gorgeous the cinematography well and i mean i feel like i just have to talk about a couple scenes i mean we should probably watch it again yeah but like it starts out in like a sepia yeah and then it turns to color yeah but like the way like when it turns to color you almost miss that it's color they get onto a train and basically there's this, I don't have any idea how long this shot is. Just this super long tracking shot of them just riding in this train. But like you're so engaged in it in and just watching them ride a train. Yeah. And it like slowly shifts from the sepia to color. Mm-hmm. And the colors are so brilliant and so vibrant. Which is weird that you could miss that. But it's just like all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, it's in color now. It is a very hypnotic scene. Yeah. So I think you're supposed to miss it. Yeah. 
Um, but this movie, um, as far as movies that ask questions, uh, asks some really, really, really intense questions. Um, basically the, the premise of the movie is that there is a zone, um, that is super dangerous. Um, and you can't go in there, uh, because inside of the zone, there is a room. And if you go in this room, it will grant you your deepest desire. Whatever it is, granted. If you can make it through the zone into the room, you get you get your deepest desire. And so the movie is, and the people who uh, basically accompany people, guide them to the room, are called stalkers. So we follow a stalker, a writer, and a professor uh, through the zone uh, towards the room. And basically the conversations they have along the way, as well as kind of this confrontation that happens at the end, um, really bring up a lot of kind of uncomfortable questions. I was reading today, um, and I liked this take that somebody had on it. Basically, they said that it's a phenomenal movie because you can take it from any angle that you want to. If you want it to be an incredible sci-fi movie, it is. If you want it to be an incredible fantasy movie, it is. If you want it to be just a heady abstract trip it is if you want it to be a character portrait it is if you want it to be like anything any angle that you examine this movie from it successfully executes it um so again where all of these movies that i've talked about today i recommend and i think are great this is like i said one of the best movies ever made wow i i think i need to watch it again for sure but like I think I agree. Like there's a lot of really amazing things about it. And again, you could watch this movie on mute and just ogle it. It's gorgeous. It is so well shot. And for, I think it came out in the seventies. Did it really? Yeah, I think. Wow. Uh, 1979. Jeez. Yeah. It's, it's just absolutely phenomenal. So, we've again, we've kind of gone in order from most accessible to least accessible. So, again, uh, take it with a grain of salt when I say... Or I guess don't take it with a grain of salt, but understand that it's not a welcoming movie. But it's a movie that if you're willing to put in the time and the effort uh, to get something out of it, you will absolutely get a lot out of it. Well, yeah. And when we talk about like film as an art form and appreciating that... Like this movie does that. Yeah. And foreign cinema as a whole, as we kind of talked about earlier, embraces that idea of cinema as an art form rather than as an entertainment medium. And I think that that difference is uh, really key in understanding the appeal of a lot of these movies. Yeah. So that is, we watch movies and then talk about them. Crash course into international and foreign cinema. I'm sure that I got some things wrong. Um, I'm sure that I said some things that were wholly untrue. Uh, this is my uh, knowledge up to this point and understanding of these things. Um, if there's any that I just straight up missed uh, that you think deserve a shout out, please write into us. We'd love to hear about them. I would love to get some more recommendations for movies in these genres or by directors that I may not have listed here or even some that I did list uh, that you think I should have talked about a movie from them. I would love any sort of recommendation or correction. I welcome it. Yes. And I think that's it. Yeah, I think so. Okay. We thank you for... Uh, this went a little bit longer than we anticipated it would go, but who cares? 
we thank you for joining us on this very special edition of We Watch Movies and Talk About Them. We will be back at you next week uh, with a standard, uh, regular-ass episode um, with Sid here and all. As long as Sid doesn't leave us As long as she doesn't just randomly ditch us again. (laughs) But, you know, is what it is. Uh, We love you. We thank you. And we'll catch you on the next one. Bye.